Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. Before you skip this episode, it's going to be fine, I promise. Take a deep breath. We're going to teach you exactly what you need to know. We're going to get you some resources, and we're going to take a little bit of that tension out of that word, and you're going to realize that the DCF is here to help you, and we're going to give you everything you need to be successful in your EMS career or in your life career. If you don't mind, um, do you mind just telling the listeners a little bit about like what your journey has been from, uh, you know, as a young adult into the the job you're doing now and kind of what that looked like? Sure. Um, so I went to the University of Vermont and was an English major and a sociology minor, had absolutely no idea that DCF, what was then SRS, existed and took a class and someone who investigated child abuse and neglect came into class and talked. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, that is a job really? I want to do that. And so politely started stalking her. And within a couple months of graduating, got a job. So I was 23 doing, um, taking phone reports for DCF and then became an investigator a few months after that. And that was 21 years ago. Wow. So with DCF, I've done investigations. And now I currently supervise investigations. I've done a few other jobs as well and also uh, started doing EMS back in 2012, 2011, 2011. And um, just really enjoy the intersection between these two worlds. Did you find that when you're working on the ambulance and anything comes within like 10,000 yards of child abuse, everyone's like, Rebecca, go. Yes. Or (laughs) the opposite where people would say, oh, that's not, we don't need to call DCF, do we? And then we'd have a really great conversation about why it actually would be a very appropriate report to make. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And so you went to school for, at UVM, did you have a graduate degree also that you had to go to? Did you just jump right in? Nope. So our, um, department in state government doesn't require master's degrees in social work. We will hire people with bachelor's degrees and some experience in casework. Um, back when I started, it was just a bachelor's degree, yeah. but we really look for people who genuinely want to help people who care about kids and families and who just have, I call it the thing. Like they just have to have the thing. Yeah. Everybody's different, just like an EMS, yeah. but they have to show up. They have to care, give it a hundred percent and, um, want to listen and hear people's stories and ask curious questions and try to help families be safer and healthier. Yeah. I, I'm always curious. So one of the things we've talked about in a bunch of other episodes is like this concept of like trauma and the human brain and how people integrate and work through things. And I guess I'm curious, just generally, do you find that sometimes uh, DCF jobs will attract people that have like some level of like, you know, checkered past or history or their own trauma, like the whole trauma knows trauma thing? Or do you feel like some people come into it and they have, they've never even heard of child abuse and they're kind of learning about it and getting better as they grow? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, We have people who were children in custody themselves and want to continue to pay it forward and give back what they got from their social worker. We have people who did experience childhood trauma um, and we have people who have no background in it, but just know that this is a job where you can come in and make a difference in children and families' lives every day, which is not a job that, not something that too many people can say about their job. Yeah. I know, you know, as I was, as I was coming up through EMS, we have talked about this before about like, you know, every textbook and every lecture and every program that you go to is going to have something about child abuse somewhere in there sprinkled in. Um, But what my experience was when I was learning was it was a few pages in probably the back of the textbook. And it was these really, really dramatic cases like, you know, oh, this this person, you know, held the child's hand against the stove and burned their hand to a second degree burn and keep your eye out for that. And as I left my EMS program and started working on the ambulances, especially as like a really young uh, crew chief on some per diem jobs I had, I never had any like super obvious in your face trauma cases, all the, all the ones that I had that ended up being DCF reports were much more of like an incendiary, you know, complicated, the scene just didn't feel right. You know, and I think there are a lot of folks that uh, have not experienced a child abuse case before in the field. And they're like, 
looking only for zebras. Like they're only looking for that really like obvious shaken baby. We know it's shaken because someone said it and they have the signs and symptoms. Um, But like what we talked about in the pre-show is there's a lot of cases where it truly is some level of child abuse, but it's, it's not so obvious that it's going to, you know, show up and, and, and be right in your face. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of some of the periphery things that you want to make sure EMS providers aren't missing and maybe some things that you see commonly that probably is overlooked by people without experience? Absolutely. I think that there are a lot of cases that EMS providers go into or patients calls that they go to where they're not thinking child abuse or neglect because it's not physical abuse. That's really obvious, like you said, with um, burns, lines of demarcation, a handprint on a face um, or sexual abuse, which, you know, everybody knows exists. Nobody really wants to talk about. And we certainly don't want to deal with on the ambulance, although we, of course, will. Um, But it's also situations that place kids at risk of harm or that cause them to be neglected. So, for example, calls where you might respond to a parent who overdoses in the house and you find them clear opiate triad and then you realize that there are kids in the house and there are no other adults. That situation, particularly depending on kids' ages, especially if they're little, especially if there's drugs left out or paraphernalia like needles, that that situation places those children at risk of harm. Um, or kids who are left in a hot car, or children who overdose on substances, which we can talk about a little bit more later. Um, Kids who are neglected, who don't get their basic needs met. Babies who appear emaciated, like they're being starved, might be being starved. Um, And all of those things are things that we want to hear about as child protection. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Just as you were talking about it, you know, I remember really distinctly in my previous job, you know, working in in a busy neighborhood and we went to an opiate overdose. And I remember that it was the uh, young child who actually called 911 on his mom who had had an opiate overdose. And we showed up, we reversed the mother, we did whatever. And I remember my lieutenant at the time was like just you know, putting his arm around this kid and like really trying to help the kid, you know, Hey, you did a great job. You did exactly what you're supposed to be doing. You know, awesome work. You called us for the right reasons. We're here to help your mom and you and all this stuff. And you could see how shaken up the kid was and kind of in our like jaded EMS brains on our, on our way back to the fire station in the truck, we were just like all just talking to each other being like, man, like that kid's going to like remember that. Like that's a huge traumatic impact that like this, I think it was like a six or seven year, like it was a young kid. I remember like dialed, dialing 911 was kind of like a big deal for the kid to be able to do that and recognize it. And I just remember us all driving back to the fire station being like, man, like that's it. Like this kid's going to have trauma from that. Like this kid walked in and his mom was not breathing. And like, we were like doing CPR on this woman, like, you know, and, and now she's resuscitated. And now like that kid is going to live with that memory. I mean, this isn't like a one-year-old. This is like a school-age kid that's going to remember this experience. And um, like you said, I mean, we were thinking a lot about the mom. We were thinking a lot about, oh man, that kid did a great job. We're really proud of you. You know, let us know if you need anything. Let's get you some resources, you know, but I don't know if like child abuse was at the top of our list. We had, you know, we had this really sick patient. We had this really scared kid, you know, and I think you get into this role of like, let's comfort the kid. Let's take care of the patient. But then let's also not forget when we get back to the station that we need to like make sure that the appropriate people are are aware that this happened because like that, that particular incident was a decision that created this environment that we can't let that happen again. Certainly. And DCF, we are the ones who will come in after and talk to mom about treatment, about medication assisted treatment. We will talk to her about who's in her family network who can support her in parenting while she is getting help, who can be there with her or who can take care of her child while she goes away to treatment if she requires that level of care, Um, getting the child into counseling, making sure that the school knows and the pediatrician knows that this family needs extra support. We're able to provide all of that. And that really is the goal because I know we talked a little bit in the pre-show about how um, a lot of providers who don't have experience with DCF and people generally think that DCF is there just to take kids away. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. Our primary goal is to make sure kids are safe. And ideally, if that can be with their family of origin, that's what we want. We want them to be safe and happy and healthy. We want families to have the resources. We want kids to get their needs met. Um, And if kids aren't safe and we can't make plans with 
families and extended family and neighbors and friends and childcare providers and school teachers, then we start talking about whether or not kids need to be out of their home and in foster care. And even then we're still trying to place them with people that they know because we know that that's what's best for kids. And, you know, we don't want to be another traumatic event, you know, another adverse childhood experience that these kids endure, you know, having to be removed from their homes. Yeah. We've, we've had Nikki Moyer on the show from BPD before. I know you know her. She's great. And one of the things she mentioned, she was talking more about domestic abuse, which has to go hand in hand with a lot of these cases that you're dealing with. And one of the things she was talking about is like, sometimes it's, it's the environment that is a primary precursor for a lot of these, these things that are happening to the point where, you know, we all know that there sometimes in these families, there's, there's somebody that's, that's just, just toxic for that household, like a friend or a drug dealer or a ex-boyfriend or an ex-girlfriend or, a, you know, a step parent, somebody that's just, just not good for the people that are in that household. And exactly what you said, I think if, you know, DCF can recognize that maybe the solution isn't taking the kid away from the mom. Maybe the solution is like, let's find a way to get this mom some resources so she doesn't have to keep come crawling back to the the dingy motel room with the ex-boyfriend because she doesn't have a way to support herself. Maybe we can get her some resources where, you know, she wants to do the right thing and her hands being forced because she just feels so under pressure from all these other obligations. Um, and I think that's a really fair way to look at it to make sure it's not just about pulling the kid out of the situation. It's about, you know, shoring up the surroundings be around the kid, making sure that, you know, if mom wants to be better and mom has the ability to be better, let's get those resources available so that that family unit can continue to grow and be healthy for everybody. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's the EMS involvement or fire involvement. That's a point in time. And you make a report based on your experience for a short period of time, everything that you observed, everything that you heard. Um, but there are many, many, many community resources that come after. So DCF, as well as local mental health, medical providers, school, um, child protection is really a community issue. And I think that the more we all embrace that, the better off our kids and families will be. Yeah. And we've talked before, like, I'm confident when I started my EMS career, I was 100% confident that the moment you dial the DCF number, they trace your location and the black suburban show up and just stuff the kids in the back of the cruiser and disappear forever and their name is changed. And like, I remember there were so many times where like, you know, these little tiny, you know, uh, warning lights would come on in my head and I would be like, oh man, though, like, he seemed really nice. I, I don't want them to take his kids away and have them never see him again because of me. Like, what if I'm wrong? And I think just making sure that providers understand that, you know, you are that point in time that's being funneled into a wider picture with a lot of other pieces of information to make that decision. And I think there, like you said, there are definitely cases where you have to go intervene immediately because the, the, egregiousness of what you're seeing or what it's suggesting. You just, you have to intervene for the safety of the kid or the safety of the people around the kid. Um, but I think the vast majority of it, you know, if, if I'm, I'm a new dad and if, if I bring my baby outside and I forget to put a sweatshirt on the baby and the baby starts shivering and I run back inside and get it a sweatshirt, like you're not going to steal my baby. Like I'm a learning dad. Like, and I think (laughs) there's a lot of people and a lot of young people who are not parents who they think that DCF is going to, you know, climb in the bedroom window and take the baby because there's a risk. And I think it's way more complicated than that. Yes, it's way more complicated than that. A, I really wish they would give me a black suburban. That would be a lot of fun. Um, but nope, I drive a Subaru like every other Vermonter. Uh, and in most cases we are going in and providing education. We are asking questions. We are providing resources. We are talking to people about what is in our current society safe parenting. Um, there's a wide range of what that looks like because we're state government going into people's lives and we really aren't there to tell you how to parent unless it's something unsafe. Um, but it's critical that EMS providers have an index of suspicion when they're going into pediatric calls that, like you said, I, I don't remember what you said, but I call it, it just doesn't sniff right. Um, if it makes the antenna go up, if it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck, that means something just like it does when you are looking at a patient thinking that they're circling the drain. That's because they are, um, similar in child abuse situations or potential child abuse situations. If you're concerned enough to have that feeling, that's a great time to start asking more questions. You're doing it in the interest of taking care of your patient and providing the best possible care, both on the truck 
and when you get to the hospital and giving a patient report to the nurse or the doc. Um, but it also is information that you're ultimately going to report to us if you have reasonable cause to suspect that child abuse or neglect may have occurred. That's what mandated reporting law says. We're all mandated reporters in EMS. Um, and that's all you need. You don't have to know what happened. You don't have to be able to prove it. You definitely don't need to investigate it. But if you think something might have happened, that's when you pick up the phone and call. And we have regular people just like me answering the phone, taking reports. Everything that you say in that report gets documented and then it's reviewed. And so we make decisions based on our policies. It's not just sort of willy nilly catch as catch can. We take all the reports. It's all documented into perpetuity in our system. Um, and sometimes if it's a report that isn't accepted from that case, there might be future reports that then show a pattern and result in us getting involved and trying to help make things better for kids. Yeah, I think that's such an important way to look at it. And I know the first time I made the report, it was like, I literally just stared at the phone and the bullpen for like 20 minutes. And I was like, am I going to do this? Oh, no. And I think the other thing that I want to just plug for those of you that are in leadership positions is like, if you go to a situation like that, even if you don't feel that it's something, if anybody that was on that call feels like there might be something there, you owe it to the integrity of the entire crew to sit down with them and work with them and help them understand that process. Because one of the things that's really um, big in the job I work in now is this whole idea of like crew resource management and making sure everyone has equal input in the team and that they're at least heard and understood and acknowledged. And I think with this type of thing, if you're a CPR only driver and it's your fourth call and you're like, man, that I don't think that that's right. Like, I think that there might have been something there. Even if I don't necessarily pick up on what you're picking up on, that's an opportunity for you to help educate that person and walk through the process and let them share their findings. Because, you know, we are only seeing those little points in time. But you on the other side of the phone might go to the file cabinet and open it up and have 10 or 15 other reports just like that from other towns or hospitals or schools or counselors. And that's kind of like, you know, those connect the dot pictures like you're the one with the pencil that's able to start making those connections. We're just the dot on the page. And I think it's so important that, you know, if it's not really founded, you guys are going to work that out. That's your job, you know, and that and you guys are comfortable doing that. And I think it will take a lot of weight off the providers to know that. There's really no penalty for reporting anything. And if nothing bad is there, like it's going to be fine. Like it's going to be okay. You're not going to show up and, you know, put a banner on the guy's house that says this guy forgot a sweatshirt for his baby. Like it's going to be fine. Like I think you guys have enough experience to do that. Absolutely. We have a ton of experience because this is what we do every day. You know, you think about pediatric calls that involve child abuse and neglect as the worst calls you ever go on often, yep. and you maybe have a handful of really bad ones in your career, or maybe just one. Yeah. This is our bread and butter every day. Yeah. We wish we didn't have jobs, but we do. Yeah. Um, and we always will. Yeah. So we get really familiar with figuring out what actually happened and what's what might make sense versus what is um, not a story that's plausible. So the, my favorite example that I give in training is the baby that rolled off the couch. Um, when you maybe as a paramedic respond to a house and you see an infant on the floor unresponsive, it's a shag carpet and it's a saggy old couch that's like 18 inches off the ground. And you've got, and I'm going to say dad because not, that sounds stereotypical, but is also uh, statistically accurate. Um, you have dad standing there saying, I don't know what happened to the baby. She just rolled off the couch and it's a one month old baby who's unresponsive, your index of suspicion is going to go up. Yeah. Um, it's so important that we pay attention to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I a hundred percent agree. I think that, um, the case we had kind of talked about a little bit in the pre-show is, is that case where, you know, we respond to a female complaining of nausea. We walk in, it's a female, like two weeks postpartum and she meets us at the front door. You know, she's kind of waddling out to the ambulance. She gets in the back. She says, you know, I'm sick to my stomach. I need to go to the hospital. We go, okay, great. And just kind of like the hail Mary as we're like packing her up is always, you know, Oh, is there anyone else in the house? Oh yeah. My baby's in there, but he's all set. I was like, I'm sorry. What? And like, yeah, my baby's in there. I was like, who else is in there? Well, nobody, but he's sleeping. And we're like, okay how old is a baby? Two weeks. And everyone's like two weeks. Like who's coming? Is your mom? No, no, no. It, it's just going to sleep and we're going to go to the hospital. And we're like, no, we have to like 
we have to make sure that the baby is okay. That someone's like, are we bringing the baby? She was like, no, you're bringing me. I'm sick. And I think this like conversation went round and round for a minute. I think everyone in the truck was like, what's happening? Like, what is going on here? And I think, you know, we go in, we, we ended up calling the police department. They came over, you know, they found custody for the kid. They were able to take care of that and get a family member there. And I remember getting to the hospital and that was actually my first DCF report. And I remember like sitting in that bullpen, like I said, for 20 minutes being like, well, like she didn't hurt the baby. Like the baby was sleeping. Like she didn't hurt him. I mean, it, like it didn't look like the pictures in the textbook. She didn't dip him in a hot bath or, you know, do anything bad like that. And then I remember having this conversation with my crew, which was really great at the time and being like, yeah, but like a two week baby can't be alone. Like, and being a 19 year old crew chief, like, I don't, I mean, I don't know how long a baby sleeps. I don't like, I had no idea. I knew that that wasn't right, but I also didn't have like life experience to make that decision. And I think that's a good point to mention is like, if you don't have the life experience or you're unsure, like, why don't you call the people that are sure? We wouldn't expect an EMT to do synchronized cardioversion on a cardiac patient. So you call for an intercept. Like all you're doing by calling DCF is just calling for an intercept for more experience to make an educated assessment of what's going on to help you make the right decision. Um, I don't remember what the disposition on that one was, but I just remember that being a really powerful experience because one, um, the DCF person I talked to was like really nice, super friendly, very like helped me really relax and take a deep breath. Like I was fully expecting to call like, you know, a customer service line and get like some curmudgeon that was upset for me calling them and like, you know, wow, that's, that's not right. You know? And I was terrified and they were great. They were like a human being that was like, Hey, first of all, great work. Second of all, I know you're doing a lot and thank you for calling us. And I was like, wow, this is really pleasant. Didn't put me on hold, went right to a direct person, a human being, which is a shock. And I think it's important to remember that like, it doesn't have to be those dramatic, painful, oh my God, this is terrible. It might just be something where it's like, you can't leave a two month old baby at your house by itself. Like that doesn't make sense. And then, you know, referring that up so that can be followed up on. And I, I think we had talked about, um, I think this mom may have had some postpartum stuff going on and some other life things. And that might just be some adjustment of resources and some mental health counseling, maybe some medication. That's not taking that woman's baby. That's, that's a discussion about how are we going to make sure that this doesn't ever happen again? And how can we make sure that everyone in this house is happy moving forward? Yeah. 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 I remember, um, having my daughter and being in the hospital for two days. And then at the end of the two days, they brought in our discharge paperwork and they're like, so she's all set. We'll put her in the car seat and you got this yellow cart and, uh, you guys be on your way. And I was like, we're going to drive a baby 45 minutes to Cambridge. I have not slept in two full days. I slept 10 minutes last night. And they're like, you'll be all right. And I was like, no, I don't even know. I can't even put my watch on. What do you, and they're like, have a good day. And it's like, Oh my goodness. Like, and it's just that, new parent we had talked about before, like a couple of days in, you're like, I'm going to die. Like my body's just going to stop working. Like how, how am I not dead? It makes no sense. Right. And then you think about people who, you know, were sitting across the table from each other. We're privileged. We know we're privileged. Yeah. We have resources, we yeah. have supports and, you know, not everyone is in that boat. And yeah. sometimes, you know, we also know that child abuse and neglect crosses all economic, you know, racial, any status doesn't matter. Yeah. People sometimes make mistakes. People yeah. do terrible things. Um, people struggle with addiction. You know, it can be anywhere, but we really just want to get people the help and support that they need to be able to parent their kids. Yeah. So if there's any moral of the story here, don't be afraid of DCF. They're really nice people. Rebecca's around. We she are. can help you. They're yep. great. Um, and don't think that your report or your phone call is going to be, you know, the end all be all for everything. This, everything you say is being evaluated by a professional, put into perspective, evaluated with lots of other data points and an educated decision is, be make, is being made. And if, if the black suburbans do show up and have to take a kid there, there is absolutely unequivocal evidence for immediate danger for that kid. And if you had not made that report, that kid is at really substantial risk. And that's the reason that that's happening. And it's not about you. That's about the safety of the kid. And I, I think you've told me before that, you know, the times where those immediate, you know, those immediate actions need to happen are relatively few and far between compared to the more prolonged investigations, discussions and information gathering and education. 
in the state of Vermont, we had in 2022, almost 20,000 calls, yeah. reports made to the hotline. Yeah. Then you get down to how many were actually accepted. And that's around 4,500. Then we drill down further to think about how many actually resulted in removal. Yeah. And that number is considerably smaller. Yeah. Substantially smaller. Yeah. So what we do can go in a million different directions. It's just like a, an algorithm on the ambulance. Um, and yep. we look for if we have A and B and C or, you know, nope, we only have A and B, then let's try this. Let's do this. Um, it is using your language. It is very rare that the black suburbans pull up. Yeah. Um, and most of the time, if not all of the time, kids are being removed for really significant reasons that yeah. anybody, whether you yeah. are a DCF employee or not, would say, yep, that kid isn't safe. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's so important to remember. And the other thing I always try to mention to young providers too, um, even though I'm a young provider too, is, is kind of this idea that it's a whole network. It's not just the ambulance. I mean, there's firefighters, there's police officers, there's school educators, counselors, there's camp counselors, there's church uh, folks, there's daycare providers, there's um, state representatives, and there's all of these different nexuses of where this kid is going to be interacting with different groups. And the cool thing about DCF is they have the ability to start tying those things together. We in EMS, like we are there primarily for medical reasons. That's our goal. And so we're there when a medical event happens. But if something happens at home and it's not medical, uh, it's not like a medical emergency, we don't get called to that. We may never see those other points in that wheel, the other spokes in the wheel. Whereas, you know, teachers, uh, my, my brother-in-law is a teacher and, you know, just, just thinking about, they see those kids every day and like to the point where they can tell what's going on at home, even psychologically, just by how the kid is interacting with their friends and with the curriculum. And so like you have this, you know, teacher that sees them every day that's trending a change. Now you have a, a point in time from EMS that says, oh, well, you know, mom overdosed the other day and the kid was sitting on the couch and the kid was just playing video games the whole time because they were like essentially shell-shocked using the old language of post-traumatic tr uh, stress disorder. And then you have camp counselors and churchgoers, you know, and maybe the, the person in the church is like, hey, we haven't seen that kid at Sunday school in weeks. And that's abnormal. Like usually they're here all the time. And I think it's so important to remember that like DCF is the center of that hub that's collecting all that information and helping paint that picture and making sure that that support network is in place for the kid that may not know how to ask for help. They may be too young. They may not be aware or maybe that's that environment's all they know and they don't know that it's abnormal for mom and dad to get in a fist fight when they're sitting on the couch. Like that should not be an environment where that kid has to endure that. Right. I think one of the things I'd be remiss if I didn't plug while we're talking about all of these different points of intersection is that if children do come into custody, we are always desperately looking for foster homes Yeah. because as much as people say, yep, I agree. Child abuse is terrible. Child neglect is a problem. We really want kids to be with family, but if they can't be, they should have a safe place to go. Yeah. We don't have enough of those safe places to go yeah. because people start to get very uncomfortable when it becomes something that impacts their life or yeah. their family. Yep. You know, it's a little bit of like not in my backyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it is incredibly rewarding, I think, for foster parents once they start to see kids blossom and whether they reunify with their parents or whether they ultimately are freed for adoption. And again, our goal is always reunification if yeah. it can be safely done. Yep. They they also get to have that experience of knowing that they have made a tremendous difference in a kid's life. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think that's such a good point. It's, um, it's kind of that like out of sight, out of mind, I think for a lot of folks where you maybe read an article, you hear a podcast and you're like, Ooh, that is really bad. And I definitely will say something if I see something, but you know, uh, one of my friends was, uh, worked on a detachment with uh, department of Homeland security and was working on human trafficking. And I can tell you before, uh, my conversation with him, if you had asked me if there was human trafficking in Vermont, I'd be like, not really. I mean, that's like, that's like Eastern Europe stuff. There is a lot in Vermont and it happens all the time. And I had some training on that and I actually was involved in two separate EMS calls that were direct human trafficking that we were able to refer and start to provide resources to intervene on that. And it's one of those things where like the more you learn about child abuse, neglect, all that stuff, um, and, and, uh, human trafficking, 
it's almost like you like start to see through the trees a little bit and you're like, wait a minute, like a two week old baby can't stay home by itself. Like this is something that we have to intervene on. And I think, you know, it's so important to have that consistent training and it's, it can be uncomfortable for providers. Like I know that whenever I knew I was going to be learning about child abuse, I'm like, Ooh, that's horrible. Like that's, but I think some of it is on the way we're educating people. I think some of it's like, if all your experience in child abuse education is reading your EMT textbook, which shows like a kid that was like, had their face held to a hot stove. That's horrible. That's a horrible. And every one of the cases I've been involved in that's that we've reported that's had an impact on a child's life is not that it's neglect, it's legal custody issues. It's, um, you know, uh, the child was in an unsafe environment and, you know, accidentally overdosed on something. It's not these like huge, terrible, traumatic things. And I think if you just show these dramatic pictures, like it's like back in health class, right. You know, 20 years ago when they just scare you away from health, like don't, you know, don't ever have sexual intercourse, you know, before you're married, because you're going to like, you're going to get herpes and die. Right. That's not, we know, statistically speaking, that's not the most effective way to educate young people. And I think some of our older EMT textbooks were taught that way. It was taught like, this is terrible and report it if you see it. But I think having conversations with people like you, and, and it's so great that you're going into these agencies and having these discussions, because once it stops becoming the black suburban DCF and starts becoming Rebecca, it's so much easier to talk about it. Yeah, I often go into training and can see people sit up a little straighter and open their eyes a little more when I walk in in jeans and, <laughs> you know, clogs and, a, you know, normal person shirt. I don't yep. know what they think I'll be wearing yeah. um, and start talking and swear and talk about things that are tough to talk about, but yeah. also do it in a way that people understand it's okay to use humor. That is a healthy coping strategy. Yeah. Um, it's okay to talk about child sexual abuse and child physical abuse because that's how we're going to recognize it mm-hmm. and tell them that, sure, you may have one or two calls in your entire career that are these terrible pictures that I'm going to show you mm-hmm. because I see these cases fairly regularly in the grand scheme of a career. Um, but most of your calls are going to be those things that aren't so in your face, but that with education, you start to ask questions and start to think more and realize that, Hmm, this actually isn't okay. I don't feel good about this. I want somebody else to come in after I drop this patient at the hospital and try to help them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I think it's important to remember that you may not be the only resource that they contact throughout their journey in this emergency medical event. Um, one of the you know things we talked about um, in the pre-show was this you know this this baby where the grandfather didn't want to take care of the baby anymore because the baby's crying. He says, "I'm done. I'm not taking care of the baby. Take the baby." And then it becomes really complicated because mom is sick and mom can't take care of the baby. Dad is not supposed to be with the baby, but dad wants the baby. And all of a sudden, it starts to get all these complicated things. And as a young EMS provider, you're like oh my goodness, like, what do we do? Like dad's here and dad wants a baby, but dad can't have the baby, you know? And then mom is sick. So she can't have the baby. The The family members don't want the baby, you know? And, it, and you just have this pretty little adorable baby that's just happily sleeping. And now as a dad, I know probably not for long, but happily <laughs> sleeping at the moment. And ultimately what we did in that case is bring the baby to the emergency department because at two o'clock in the morning, there's some resources in the emergency department that we cannot get on, on a street in the old North end. We have to go somewhere. Um, and, uh, just a shameless plug. Um, the ER nurses were like amazing. I mean, you bring a beautiful little baby into the hospital at two o'clock in the morning. All those nurses are amazing. Like all they want to do is hang out and hold the baby and walk around and do whatever. And I think one way to remember this is there are resources. There are some resources available for you. And if you don't know what to do, you can call and just say, I don't know what to do. I'm lost and I don't know what to do. I'm in the middle of Huntington. This isn't good and I need some help. And I think just like you would call for a paramedic intercept, don't be afraid to try to come up with solutions to help yourself get out of that situation. Cause it can be, it can be a lot, especially for a young crew, crew chief who doesn't have the life experience. It can be a lot. When I do training, I often leave and leave my number and yeah. say, while I would rather you not call me in the middle yeah. of the night, you are more than welcome yeah. to, because sometimes it's just having that face that you can connect yep. 
to DCF and know that, hey, if I call her, she's going to pick up the phone. She's going to help me out. She's going to tell me if I have to make a report, which I will always tell you if you're worried enough to call me, mm-hmm. you should make a report yeah, to yeah. the hotline. Yeah. Um, but then she's going to give me some ideas to walk us through. Yeah. I had a call probably two months ago, right after I did training at a department. And um, yeah, amazing. And the uh, person on the other end of the phone said, hey, so we responded to this house for two overdoses by two different people in the same week. There were no kids there, but we know that there's a kid who lives there and we know that they're involved with DCF. Do you want a report about that? And I said, absolutely. I'm so glad you picked up the phone because that would not be a call that people would normally make to DCF, but they knew enough to have the heads up thinking, Hey, we know that there's kids here. We didn't see them. We don't know if they were at the house. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Um, but that ultimately was a piece of information that fit into the puzzle that we have been trying to put together for months. Yeah. And Now, whether or not that provider ever calls me again or just calls the hotline, they know that what they're doing when they reach out actually does make a difference to us. Yeah, no, that's that's huge. And I always got a kick out of when I was working in the training division, how you do training on a topic and then the next two months, two to three months after that, whatever training topic you just went over increases by like a thousand percent. Like if you're talking about pain medication administration and you go over it and you do some exercises and you do everything within the next two months, you'll see pain meds being delivered to the appropriate patients a lot more frequently, you know, and and I think the same is true with, you know, DCF or domestic violence or any type of training that you bring in that's like that you're going to start getting calls and reports with which stuff that should have been reported before, but maybe people just need a little bit of a refresher. And, you know, I know I'm, I'm bashing the textbook, sorry, Dan Limmer, but you know, some of those pictures there, it, it doesn't help you put things into perspective. It just gives you kind of the same theme that most people probably have in their head. If I were to say DCF and child abuse, there's probably some images that pop into people's heads. And I can tell you from my humble experience, a lot of the experiences I've had are not that it's something different. And I think having somebody like you come in and teach a little bit about like, what is child abuse? What does it look like? What does it maybe not look like? And then reminding people like, just call. It's fine. Like they're friendly. They're taking information. You know, you're not like, you're not breaking up a family by making one phone call. Like you are providing information to people that are educated to sift through all of that 20,000 calls a year and make sure that we get to those people that need us to get to them and make sure that they're safe and healthy and that people have the resources they need to have a happy and productive family life. Yes. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. You can record that, put on your website if you want. Yeah. So I, I think it's just, it's about dispelling the image you see in your head. Cause I, I mean, for better or for worse, like I said before, I was confident that it, that the DCF was a cargo van with, with a burlap sack and they just show up. And anytime anybody's within 10,000 feet of doing anything bad to a kid, taken away, you change your name and and disappear forever. And, and the more I learned about it and the friends that I have that work there, I'm so impressed by like the ability to sift through things that are well intended, but aren't child abuse that are just, just normal working moms and dads and, and other folks that are just, just trying to do their best. Right. i forget socks on my baby once in a while. And there are people that think that that's horrible. And sometimes like, I know. Right. So, and sometimes like, sometimes it is cold and sometimes their feet get cold and I run inside and put socks on, but that doesn't mean that my baby's going to be taken away. And I think having the confidence that the folks at DCF are, a lot of them are probably parents. A lot of them have lived their lives and they know that, you know, if you dig into these things and plot things as a trend, you can see, is this child abuse or is this just a well-mannered parent who made one mistake and will never do that again? A lot of times our interventions wind up be lear- wind up being learning experiences yeah, for parents. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, and that can be from the more extreme things, somebody who, you know, leaves out meds and doesn't properly store them, mm-hmm. even if they're the child's meds yeah. and the child is too young to realize that that's not candy yeah. and they overdose and wind up in the hospital, yeah. but it is truly just a mistake or a bad choice um, that they will never do again. Or the parent who gets really frustrated and when their kid swears at them and slaps them in the mouth and causes an injury. And again, they say, I can't believe I did that. It was a terrible mistake. I will never do it again. That's probably something that that parent 
is going to remember long after it's yeah. a distant memory for the kid and we can help them address it. Think about other strategies, yeah. you know, get the med lock box, whatever it is. A lot of our interventions look like that. Yeah. And I love the fact that you're treating the actual cause of the problem and not just addressing the symptoms. I've always said this in the other podcasts we've had, like, you know, the case where the the parent slaps their kid. Like, I like that you're looking at it from a perspective of like, first of all, that can never happen again. We all agree on that. Second, like maybe this parent is like really having a mental health crisis. Maybe they are so stressed out with work and family life that they have lost their ability to cope and think clearly when things are stressing them out. And sometimes like a little bit of counseling, maybe a little bit of medication, some therapy, like helping them learn how to make good decisions about things that stress them out will ultimately benefit both them and the child and their family unit. Like maybe just removing the kid because they can't control their temper isn't the long-term fix. Maybe the long-term fix is let's dig into this. Like let's dig into the root cause of why this happened and let's address that and not just treat, you know, not just separate you because you, you, you're having a hard time controlling your stress. So I really like that. That's, that's part of the plan is finding out what are the conditions that led to this event? Not just let's, let's just separate people. So the event doesn't happen. I think that's really important. Yeah. And that's where the EMS interventions, when you talk about calls that providers go actually would go on, um, you know, probably you're not responding to a kid who got slapped in the face, but you know, maybe the kid who got shaken or thrown, um, you are there. We will, you'll get that point in time information and maybe a little bit of history because Mm -hmm. that's important to being able to provide care. And then we'll get the whole picture. Yeah. Yep. No, that makes a ton of sense. And I think just because you mentioned it, probably, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, probably one of the most serious child abuse cases that we're going to run across that happens in Vermont that really causes a lot of impact is the shaken baby or pediatric head trauma, especially young infant head trauma. Um, Anyone who's been a parent knows that when you're in mom, baby, like every 20 minutes on the dot, they're going to come in and they're going to show you the video and you're going to sign. And then you, they take, you know, each parent does a drop of blood and they like confirm that you're aware you can't shake the baby. And, you know, they say it, Hey, you know, make sure you feed your baby and don't shake it. Remember no shaking. Um, But it does happen. And can you just walk through a little bit about like, if you are a provider responding to that type of scene, is there any, you know, special events that they need to be thinking about? Um, you know, how would the, let's just use an example. How would the DCF work through an environment like that? Right. So, so EMS goes, we think it might be a shaken baby. We call you say, Hey, Rebecca, uh, this kid's really sick and I don't have a good history on it. And, uh, the dad and the mom are, are just completely stone, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin, not telling me anything like, but this kid is sick and is showing signs of like brain herniation. What are some things that DCF is going to do to try to figure out what's going on here? We're going to start with the questions that we ask during the report. And so this is something I teach in training and would, would just encourage any provider to be thinking about when you go on a call that again, doesn't sniff right, pay attention. I mean, of course you're Patient is your primary concern, but we always talk about scene size up and scene safety. Those things are critical, especially in these cases. Um, So you're going to have people around the child, but if, if you have enough providers to be able to actually lift your eyes up and look around the scene, where are you picking this child up from? Are they inside, outside? Who called EMS? Um, Are they in someone's arms? Are they on the ground? Are they in a crib? What does the scene look like? Is it a chaotic scene? Lots of people. How are the people acting? Mm -hmm. Is it, um, does it look like things are strewn about? Like there might've been a struggle. Um, if this child has any external signs of injury, pay attention to that. Be looking at, you know, for example, if you have a baby with, um, obvious head trauma and you see a depression in the skull, you know, are there any objects in that room that that child might have been struck against. Mm -hmm. Um, Then we're going to talk about things like what kinds of treatment did you do? Because I'm really interested in what you saw, what you did, why you did it, Mm -hmm. because that's, those are the same things that the docs are going to want to know at the hospital so that they can continue to provide care. Yeah, We're going to want to know who, if you know who was on scene again, this shouldn't, 
delay time on scene ever yeah. because the patient yep. comes first. Yeah. But, um, you know, ideally you're going to have enough providers where somebody's getting a history from the parents mm-hmm. or attempting to, yeah. um, but they might be able to also say, oh yes, there was somebody who mom referred to as her mother. Mm-hmm. And so those are all potential witnesses for us. We yeah. want to know all about all of those people. These are cases that will always be jointly investigated with law enforcement. So mm-hmm. every county in Vermont has a special investigations unit and those detectives are trained to work serious physical injury cases in children, as yeah. well as child sexual abuse and adult sexual abuse cases. So we are all going to divide and conquer doing interviews of literally everyone and their mother mm-hmm. um, who might've been involved. We're going to be talking to medical providers. We're going to be taking a look at the child, figuring out are the injuries consistent with what might um, be abusive head trauma and EMS providers and firefighters who are on scene are truly our eyes and ears because you are the only ones who are there in the moment. You are the only ones who get the history. Your history that you gather might be different than what's told to the hospital, might be different than what's told to us and the police. And so we are always going to want to talk to you and find out what did they tell you? How are they acting? Um, You know, we, we will always have calls where parents are so upset by their child's, you know, traumatic injury that they freeze. But I think we all can see that and sort of recognize if that fits with what's happening Mm -hmm. or if it just sniffs bad. Yeah. And so that's why EMS and fire are so critical in these calls because you get things that we will never get. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. And I know one of the things I've always heard from my DCF buddies is this idea that like, Sometimes in the moment, the the truth comes out very naturally. So if somebody says, you know, oh, they were they were on the couch and I left for a second and they fell off the couch and then they called DCF and they said, oh, man, I left him on the couch for a second and they fell off the couch. And then the law enforcement talks to them. Oh, man, I left for a second and they fell off the couch. The likelihood that they're like really making up that story goes down just a little bit because it's so consistent. And it's like especially with how it's been told and like the history and all those other factors. But if they say. Oh, I left them on the couch to EMS and then they call and DCF works with them. They say, well, they were on the bed and they rolled off the bed. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, they're on the changing. It's like, yeah, right. There's, there's too many, like, because if, if, you know, being a parent now, like if something bad happened to my child, I'm going to tell what happened, what happened to my child. I want the best care possible. And like, and you know, I think generally speaking, most people are good. Maybe I'm jaded, but like generally speaking, most people are good and people make mistakes. And I think if the story is consistent from the beginning to the end and everything else is working good, I think that does factor in, you know? Absolutely. We had a case that was also an EMS call and PD was involved where a boyfriend was home taking care of the toddler. And the first story he told was that he was holding the child and fell down the basement stairs, which the child's injuries could have potentially been consistent with that, but the caretaker had no injuries on him. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but if I fall down the stairs as an adult, I'm probably going to get hurt, especially into the basement. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that was questionable. Then the next story he told after just a little more conversation with the police was that he was carrying the child through the kitchen and tripped over the cat. Mm -hmm. And so at that point in my mind, yeah, Something happened. You're not telling us what it is, but we know something happened. And now it's just a matter of further investigating it. Yeah. And it's so interesting that you you say it that way because my wife is a big fan of true crime. Like a lot of people are. They just just can't get enough. And one of the things that I think is so interesting from a human behavior perspective is all these interviews they do with homicide suspects. And one of their go-to techniques is they will just repeatedly ask these people, the same exact thing over and over and over again, maybe worded differently. Maybe someone else does it. Maybe they put you in a different corner of the room. Maybe they ask you on a different day, a different time. They, you know, they'll give you a coffee and then ask you again. And they just continue to ask you the same thing because eventually if you're making it up, eventually you'll change it just enough, or maybe you'll forget and you'll change something. And they'll realize that like, if you are truly telling the truth, like the facts are not going to change. If you fell down the stairs 
you're never going to say you fell down in the kitchen. You're, you're going to say you fell down the stairs because that's where you fell. That's what happened. Because the truth is easy to remember because exactly. it's what happened. Yeah. And and this this whole idea, you know, with the homicide detectives about like every little factor you change is going to be harder for you to remember. And the more, it, the more elaborate the story gets, you know, maybe he said he tripped over the dog the next time by accident. It's like, well, he said the cat before. Right. And these homicide detectives are so good at, you know, and you guys are too, of just like there's keywords. It's like, well, you know, you said you were carrying them, but now you said they were walking next to you. Like those little in, you know, uh, inconsistencies is what they use. And so I think it's important to remember that people who are generally good and make a mistake, they're probably going to tell the truth. They're probably going to work through that pretty standard, you know, and you're not in the business of like removing someone's child because they forgot to put a sweatshirt on their baby. Like no, or if their baby rolled off the couch yeah. and got a head injury yeah. and it legitimately rolled off the couch, yeah. which I will say is very rare, but yeah. does happen yeah. Yeah. that you wind up with a baby in the on Baird five yeah. because of a head injury yeah. that was an accident. Yeah. But that stuff happens. Yeah. Um, if it's true yeah. and we find out yeah. and people are honest and upfront, that is a really easy open and shut case for us. Yeah, absolutely. And the cool thing is like, you don't want that to ever happen again. And guess what? If it was an accident, they don't either. And you're immediately aligned in that mission of like, okay, it happened. It did. But we are going to work together as a team to make sure that your baby and you have the healthiest, happiest relationship you can possibly have for the rest of your life. And you never have to be here doing this again. And I think if you have someone that where it isn't child abuse, it's an accident. I think that they are, it's pr probably pretty easy to get them on board for that mission. Yes. Which is key which is great. Um, so just wrapping up here, if folks want to reach out to you, if they have questions, if they want some training, is there any good way that they can contact you or learn a little bit more about DCF and kind of what you folks are doing? Sure. So we have the mandated reporter training is online. Yep. Um, I believe that that is now a requirement in most EMT classes in Vermont that yep. people do the online training. I do provide sort of training often in my own time to yeah. particularly services in district three, because that's where I live and yeah, yeah. am that's particularly true. invested. Um, but I'm more than happy to have people email me if they have questions. I'm happy to connect them to the supervisors in their area yeah. in Vermont. Yep. Um, because I think it's great to build those relationships. I, we are fortunate to work in a small state where you can get a lot done just by picking up the phone or just by shooting an email because yeah. people take the time. People really do care about the well-being of their patients, of their clients. And so um, people can, by all means, reach out to me by email. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'll throw your email in the show notes. The other thing that I have to plug as a, as a business member here is that um, we are hosting our Southern Pediatric EMS Conference down at Stratton Mountain Resort. It's July 8th and 9th. Tons of great speakers, including Rebecca, will be down there doing her fancy, fancy lecture all about the DCF. Um, so if you're interested in this topic, if you want to learn a little bit more, maybe you're short a couple CE hours and you need to do a little bit on uh, child uh, wellness, um, you can definitely come down and attend that. Um, it is free for everyone. It is paid for by the state of Vermont. So you're more than welcome to come down. Um, and Rebecca will be there. You can network with her. You can uh, listen to her lecture um, and connect with her and, and get her into your service if you like. So, um, well, thank you very much, Rebecca. I appreciate you being here. Um, it was great to hear and learn from you. Thank you so much for having me.